Matthew, so we'll be going to Matthew chapter 10. This is message number 26 in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. This message is entitled Sparrows and Cold Water. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. And we're going to go through the end of the chapter in verse 42. So quite a big um, passage to deal with this morning. But I'm just going to read verse number 16 uh, as we get started. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So... um, Chapter 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 15 is what we looked at last time. And there Jesus spoke um, specifically to the 12 apostles, and he spoke to them about the mission that he was immediately sending them out on to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the apostles, they were to go from city to city throughout Israel. They were to take the good news of the kingdom into all those cities and the good news of the kingdom being the announcement that the kingdom was near because the Messiah had come. And so if Israel had received their Messiah, the kingdom would have indeed been established. Well, the passage that we looked at, we noticed how that it is characterized by a sense of of urgency. You know, he tells them to go and they're not to take a change of clothes and and extra money and and provisions. They're, They're not to be um, hindered by, by carrying anything um, extra with them as they go. And they're to, to go from place to place. They're not to go and, and simply just sort of settle down in a place or um, anything like that. So there's a, a real sense of urgency about that passage. And it's because that the time of the Messiah's coming and the time for their receiving and or rejecting him was very short. It was limited. And again, if you look at the chronology, you can work out to maybe about a year and a half from the time that Jesus spoke those words to his apostles that he would be crucified there outside of Jerusalem. And then, of course, Jesus pronounced a judgment on those cities that rejected um, the witness of his apostles that he had sent. Well, Jesus' teaching for his apostles continues through chapter number 10. In fact, through the end of chapter 10, he's continuing to address his 12 apostles. Um, But we do notice a bit of a transition as you come to verse number 16. And so there is a little bit of difference in what we're looking at uh, in the latter part of chapter 10 from what we looked at in the earlier part of chapter 10. So the end of of chapter 9, um, all the way through the end of chapter 10, is a long, continuous teaching by Jesus to his 12 apostles. And in this passage, Jesus covers immediate time, he covers near future time, and he covers far future time. Now, immediate time would be the time that is between his first coming and between the, the rejection by Israel and the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. So that was the immediate time that Jesus refers to in this passage. There's also a near future time that would be after his ascension and before the judgment of Israel in 70 AD, mostly the time that's covered by the book of Acts. And then you have the far future time, which would refer to um, the end of the age and the events of the end of the age, including um, the tribulation before the second coming and and, uh, his second coming with judgment and then the messianic millennial kingdom. So 
This time frame spans from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And each of these time periods, the, that this immediate time, the, the near future time, and, and the far future time, each of these time periods that Jesus is referring to are distinct from the rest of the time between the comings of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that each of these three time periods are characterized by urgency. And the reason being is because they are all limited time periods that God has purposed. So when you look at this passage, and specifically chapter 10 and and really the the, uh, majority of the ending part of it in particular, when you look at it this way, it does affect how that you're going to interpret the verses, the statements as you, as you work your way through here. So let's just talk for a minute about how I came to that conclusion. In other words, how, how do we know that this is the case in what Jesus is saying here? And I believe there are um, a number of ways, actually, that, that um, leads us to that conclusion. One of those would simply be that it's not unprecedented in the Bible to speak this way, to talk about things in sort of a seamless statement that are actually separated by uh, some sort of, of interspace of time. And in fact, if you were in um, the Sunday school as Steve was um, in the book of Joel, he was actually talking about some of this this morning in Sunday school. And it's, it's one of those things that actually... Um, makes prophecy challenging and, and, and difficult when you look at it in the Old Testament. So I'm just going to give you an example, example of, of what I'm talking about. And, and this is a prophetic statement that speaks of events that are actually separated by, by quite a considerable gap of time, but speaks about them seamlessly as if they are all one and the same event. So this will be Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, you might recognize that the first part of that passage that I read is what Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth that is recorded in Luke chapter number 4. He read part of this passage. He read from the beginning there in, in what we know as Isaiah 61.1, down to to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. And then he said in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, that this was fulfilled in their hearing. In other words, his coming, his first coming, fulfilled these words of this prophecy. But again, that statement goes on. It, there's not a, there's not a, a break or, or an ending or, a, or says this is going to happen and then after a long time this other is going to happen. It immediately starts talking about the day of the Lord, which is that future time of judgment that comes at the end of what we know as the tribulation period. So Jesus said he had come to fulfill the first part, 
But in his first coming, he wasn't fulfilling the second part. That's still yet future. But again, there's nothing in Isaiah to indicate that those events would be actually two separate events. And it's one of the reasons why, and I know it's like, a lot of times we like to, to throw off on, on the Pharisees as, uh, you know, as, as incompetent uh, handlers of the Word of God, and, and they did have a lot of problems, but it's understandable why them, along with, with much of, of Judaism in that day, saw the coming of the Messiah, saw all of these things as, as one event and not separate events that were separated by time. Well, so what I'm saying is, when we look at what Jesus is saying to the apostles here, he's speaking very similarly to what we read in Old Testament prophecies all the time. He is, he is, is, is sort of interweaving some different events, these three different time periods in particular in this one um, united, connected teaching. Now, the way that, that Jesus teaches his apostles then here is directly in line with the way that Revelation is given um, through the prophets. So that's one way that we look at what Jesus is saying and, and we can see him doing the same sort of thing. Another, another um, aspect that we know to take this as, as these future um, type of prophecies is that Jesus has not yet given his apostles the mystery of the kingdom. Now that's coming, and, and we'll get to that as we continue on in Matthew, but he has not yet given them the mystery of the kingdom. And what is the mystery of the kingdom? Well, the mystery of the kingdom is the fact that the kingdom did not come with Christ's first coming, but that it would in fact come with this future event, his second coming. This is the mystery of the kingdom, and something that his apostles did not understand yet at this point. So, there are also, within the text itself, there are also at least, um, we'll say, we'll say there are, are six references to a future beyond the immediate time of Jesus and the apostles, so as you're reading through this passage. Well, um, one of those would be the promise of the Spirit speaking through the apostles in verse number 20. Well, the Spirit was not yet given, according to John chapter 7, verse 39, and John chapter 16, and verse number 7. And in fact, it wasn't given, or he wasn't given, until after the resurrection and the ascension, according to Peter's words in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and again in verse 33. Verse 22 in this passage refers to the end. And this is eschatological according to Matthew 24, verses 13 and 14. In other words, it's referring to the end of the age. And actually, when you look at this um, teaching of Jesus, chapter 10, verses 17 to 23, actually parallel chapter 24, verses 9 to 14, which clearly deals with future things at the end of the age. And the third one will be in verse 23, where Jesus refers to the coming of of the Son of Man. This is something future that Jesus is referring to. The second coming, which distinguishes, Jesus himself distinguishes from his first coming. In fact, when you look down later in verses 34 and 35, he talks about, I have come. And then he says, the Son of Man will come. So there, there is a separation there between those two things. Verse 25, 
we have reference to the rejection of the Messiah by Israel, which had not happened as yet when Jesus spoke those words. Verse 26, we get a reference to future judgment that reveals the hidden secrets of men. And then in verses 41 and 42, we get references to future rewards. And we've got another section here that parallels Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, which refers to the second coming and the judgment before the kingdom. So again, all of these um, are, are reasons why you look at this passage and come to this conclusion that Jesus is speaking like the prophets of old. He's referring to a time that is immediate to them, a time that is in the near future to them, and a time that is in the far future to them, and three different time periods. So as we look at this passage, we are going to divide it into three parts, verses 16 to 25, where Jesus gives his apostles the promise of persecution. And in verses 26 to 33, where he tells them that they have no need to fear and why. And then in verses 34 to 42, where Jesus speaks about the gaining and the losing of life. So we're going to start here with the first part, the promise of persecution, um, beginning again with verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So Jesus begins here by calling their special attention to what follows. You see that interjection there, behold, or um, see, listen up, pay attention. And he wants them to, to listen carefully to what he is, is going to proceed to say here. He compares his, sheep, or his apostles, or he likens his apostles to sheep um, that are sent into the midst of a pack of wolves. And that certainly doesn't take much imagination at all to think about how that's going to go. He tells them that because of this, they need to be both wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, telling them to be wise as serpents is, is telling them they need, to be, they need to be cautious and they need to be understanding. They need to understand the time period that they are in. And they need to understand the particular dangers that they are facing because of the mission that they have been given to fulfill. So, in other words, they were not to be caught off guard. Don't be caught off guard by rejection, by persecution, or even martyrdom. And we don't, uh, we don't have, um, we certainly don't have a biblical record of the end of all of the apostles. Um, we have some reliable historical information concerning uh, at, at least many of them. We don't know in the case of all of them, but many, many of those, um, we have good reason to believe they did end up being martyred, and um, a good number of those actually prior to um, 70 AD. But he also told them to be harmless or innocent, as the word means, which refers to being unmixed. In other words, there should be a, a, a purity of motive and thoughts. And, and you might say, in, in a sense, it's almost like telling them to um, stay focused, stay focused on, on what it is that you're about, understand the time that you're in, the particular dangers you face, the mission that you are called to, and, and remain faithful to it. And he's going to say more as we proceed. 
verses 17 and 18. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. So he speaks of these dangers that they will face, um, the councils and, and the synagogues that he's referring to, refer to persecution uh, from Israel, from the Jews in particular. References to governors and kings um, refer to among the nations, uh, among the Gentiles. Um, So them, them, that's referred to, um, being the Jews and the nations being the the non-Jews. And the word for testimony that he uses here is a word that means witness. And it's, it's the word from which in the English we get the word martyr, in fact. And it refers specifically to the calling, to the office of the apostles. They were the eye and the ear witnesses of Jesus Christ. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, when Peter addressed uh, the church there in the upper room and said, you know, we need to to replace Judas, essentially. And if you think about those qualifications that he had given, it, it wasn't qualifications of intelligence or credentials and, and things of that nature, what, what was it? The, the qualification primarily was that it was someone that has been with us this whole time, beginning from the baptism of John until Jesus' ascension in heaven. Why? Because the apostles were special witnesses of what Jesus said and did. They were with him all the time. They saw him work miracles. They heard the things that he taught and, and the instruction he gave to them, the instruction uh, that he, words that he gave to the, to the multitudes. They were witnesses of his death. They were witnesses of his resurrection. They were witnesses of his ascension into heaven, of his, of his promise to return, of all the things that he, that he taught between his resurrection and his ascension. So they, they were called to this particular office, and they, they were witnesses of Jesus Christ to the Jew first and also to the nations of the world. And so many of the things that you see in this passage, you can actually read about in the, in the book of Acts. You can, you can read about them encountering these very things that Jesus was telling them and warning them about. Verses 19 and 20. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So Jesus here gives a promise of the Spirit, a promise of the Holy Spirit to his apostles. And he's telling them, though they were not to be taken by surprise by these things that would happen, they were also not to take away from their calling and mission to try to prepare for such occurrences. Just just like when Jesus sent them out more immediately and he said, you know, don't take extra provision with you, don't take extra clothing with you, don't take extra money with you, don't, don't carry all these things that are, that are going to hinder you and, and slow you down. You need, to, you need to be focused on this mission and going from city to city in, in Israel, announcing the good news of the kingdom. Well, very similarly, Jesus is, is here telling them, yeah, you're not to be cut off guard by the fact that you're going to be um, arrested, you're going to be tried, you're going to be handed over um, to these officials and things to be tried, and you're going to face these trials. Don't, don't be cut off guard by that. But at the same time, they don't need to be spending time 
worried about that, fretting about that, trying to come up with a game plan. You know, okay, uh, you know, Peter says, all right, John, we, we, you know, when we get arrested, this is what, this is what you're going to do. This is the way you're going to play it. This is the way I'm going to play it. But they don't need to spend any time on that. Why? Because Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to speak through them such that it's not you that are going to be speaking, Jesus says, but it's going to be the Spirit speaking through you. So what is this promise that Jesus is giving them? He's giving them the promise that essentially they would receive inspired revelation in those moments that they were to speak. And we see this happening in the book of Acts, places like Acts chapter 4 and verse number 8 with Peter, Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 with Stephen, Acts chapter 13 and verse number 9 with Paul. This is a promise of revelation given through the Spirit in these specific times. Now that is what Jesus has promised them. We go on to verses 21 to 23. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, um, flee into flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. So further persecution is, is obviously spoken of here. Uh, Jesus is speaking about divisiveness uh, as he names these different family members, one, one against another, a brother delivering up brother to death and the father, the, the child, and, and so on. The witness of Christ will gain hatred. And he says from all, meaning from Jews and, and Gentiles alike. The, the apostles are not... Um, going to uh, gain uh, a lot of friends. Uh, they're not going to gain a lot of fortune. Um, they're not going to uh, gain a, a, a lot of support. Uh, all, all of these sort of, sort of things. He says, you're, you're going to be hated by Jews and Gentiles alike. And when he speaks of enduring, later we, in this um, passage, um, enduring would be explained in terms of not denying Christ, persevering. These are intense times of persecution that Jesus is talking about. And these intense times of persecution are times that tend to distinguish true and false believers. True believers, Jesus is saying, will persevere in confessing Christ even in the face of martyrdom. And this end that he's talking about is further explained with the coming of the Son of Man. So again, the passage is, is very, uh, very much like the passage in Matthew 24, verses 13 to 14, that speak about the end of the age and the tribulation of the end of the age that is in view. Now, this time of intense persecution means fleeing towns, continuing to witness of Christ urgently. And the coming of the Son of Man refers to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation when he will judge unbelievers and establish his kingdom with the living believers, especially the, the repentant and believing of Israel. Now remember that Matthew uses the title Son of Man 
um, 30 different times in his gospel. And he uses it in, in three specific contexts. And the third of those contexts, which is almost half of the times, 14 of them, it refers to his second coming. And that's the reference that this would belong to as well. So as we follow out this passage, we realize that the coming of the Son of Man that Jesus is speaking about here uh, brings judgment. Now let's look at verses 24 and 25. The disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So Jesus is giving an explanation here of this further persecution. And he's even referring here to the rejection of Christ. And again, this is not um, something that has happened um, fully yet. Reference to um, Beelzebub, I think literally translates to something like Lord of Flies or, or something like that. It's it a reference to the, the prince of, of demons um, uh, in essence. And it is a, it is a reference to um, what is later referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and, and the unforgivable sin, and, and that will be explained again uh, more coming up. And he's foretelling this rejection that is to come, this rejection. And it's going to happen in this immediate time space um, where he's going to be rejected by Israel. And, and Jesus is saying to his apostles, if, if they've hated, rejected your, your, uh, your Messiah, if they've rejected him, essentially calling him um, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the, the messenger of Satan or, or being empowered by Satan. He said, well, what do you think that they're going to do to you? So again, this persecution is something they should not be taken by surprise with. And then we get to verses 26 to 33, and in this section of, of what Jesus is saying to the apostles, he's telling them why they don't need to fear. Yes, these are alarming things that Jesus is talking about, but you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be paralyzed by fear. And here's why. So verses 26 to 28. Fear them not, therefore, for there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So now Jesus is referring to the judgment. He's talking about things that's, that's covered that will be revealed. There's nothing that can be hidden that, that won't be made known. And he's including in this, this would be the faith of believers as well as the unbelief of those that are destined for judgment. Well, they need not to fear to fulfill the office of the apostle in making known all that Jesus spoke and commanded. In, in other words, um, these, these things will, uh, will be sorted out. These things will be, will be set to right. And um, those who are true and those who are, are false will be clearly shown and known for what they are. Verses 29 to 31. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So here Jesus is giving them a reassurance. And he refers to these sparrows, these birds that are just insignificant 
creatures of the creation. They have virtually no value. They are, they are bought and sold for little of nothing. But despite that, Jesus says that even their lives are in the hands of the Heavenly Father. That even the lives of these little birds that we, we give little thought to, they have very little value to us. We don't put a, 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 an immense price or, or intrinsic value in them. But even them, God holds in his hand. They live and die by his command. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about how that, that God feeds them. Though they don't develop industries and build large barns and, and do all of those sort of things, he has provided for their food in the creation that he has made. Well, the point that Jesus is making is that the care that God gives to the least of his creation and how much greater care then will he take for his beloved children? In other words, if God takes this much care of this part of the creation that seems so insignificant and, and so little, how much greater care will he take of those that he values more than the least part of his creation? Well, that's the point. And Jesus is, is explaining to them that God has such knowledge of them, it's described as even knowing the number of hairs on their heads. And then verses 32 and 33. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men... Him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before me, and him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now this is again reference to future judgment. Jesus says, I will deny him before the Father. Denying Christ can come about in our speech. It can come about in our actions. And we see references to that in places like 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Verse 12, Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, where he speaks of those that profess a godliness with their mouths, but in their works they deny him. And denying Christ goes along later with what Jesus calls the finding or the saving of one's own life. And in other words, the response to this message, the response to the word of God, particularly as it is given through his apostles, will determine whether one finds or loses life. Let me get to the last part. So it starts here in verse 34, and Jesus speaks about that gaining and losing of life. Verses 34 to 36. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So Jesus says here that he had come. In other words, now he's talking about his first coming. He was there. He was speaking to them. He, he was charging them. And he says, don't think that I have come to bring peace. So this is a contrast between his first and his second coming. 
In other words, he says that his first coming would not bring peace to the earth. And that clearly contrasts with many Old Testament prophecies. He's even referred to in Isaiah chapter 11 as the Prince of Peace. And he will reign and bring peace to the earth. And these are things that are prophesied in the Old Testament pertaining to the Messiah. But he says, don't think that I am come. In other words, now. Don't think that I am come here and now as Jesus was standing before them on the earth that I have come to bring peace. His first coming was to suffer, it was to be rejected, and it was to die for the sins of his people to make atonement for them. And his first coming set in motion events that ultimately culminate in the end of the age. That's what he's referring to. He's he's setting... He's dividing father and, and mother and brother and sister and, and um, parent and child and all, all of these sort of things. He, he's, he's causing a division. But ultimately, again, this culminates in his second coming in the end of the age. Verses 37 to 39. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So Jesus says that choosing father or mother or or others over Christ is essentially to deny him. To, To choose others over Christ. Now, this will especially be clear in the particular times that are referred to. These are are limited, intense times having to do with the comings of Jesus and judgment. And this will, again, be particularly clear in these times. The finding of life that Jesus refers to, and the word that he used there essentially means the gaining of of one's own life. So it's it's self-preservation in the context of persecution and martyrdom. In other words, when Jesus talks about the finding of one's life or the gaining of one's own life, he's not just referring in some general way to pleasure-seeking. He's not just referring in general choosing to to pursue um, ease and, and comfort in this life rather than the inconveniences of following Christ. That's not what he's talking about here. He's in this context of persecution and martyrdom. So he's talking about self-preservation, the efforts to, to, um, to be excused from the persecution, the efforts to be excused from the suffering that he's talking about, particularly in these intense times, that sort of self-preservation. And the person that pursues that is the one that will ultimately lose their life. So it's, it's trying to save one's life by denying Christ, either explicitly or implicitly. And on the other hand, the faithful persevere in faith and the confession of Christ, even to the losing of their own lives in this world. And Jesus says, they will truly gain life. And then we see the last part of this in verses 40 to 42. And he that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. 
And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Now again, we find parallels to this last part of chapter 10 with Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Now, when you look at, at this, and that passage refers to judgment that when Jesus returns at the second coming prior to the, um, to the establishment of his kingdom, the inheritance of the kingdom. Um, in this passage, you notice that Jesus, he talks about receiving um, you and receiving him, receiving him that's, that sent him, receiving a prophet, and so on. So Jesus is actually working in these statements from greater to lesser, you might say. And he ends up on the least, seemingly trivial action of giving a cup of water to a thirsty disciple. So he talks about these greater things, and he works his way all the way down to just this small, seemingly insignificant act. Well, the point that Jesus is making here is that nothing will be overlooked when the Son of Man comes for judgment. Even what might seem to us to be small, insignificant matters, nothing will be overlooked. And that's in terms of reward and in terms of judgment. And you, again, the, the, this is true of this living unbeliever as well as that living believer, particularly in, in that judgment in Matthew chapter 25. And, and you can um, read that passage and see some parallels uh, between that and what Jesus is speaking here. Well, we've looked at a long passage here this morning, longer than we probably typically do. Um, but it is all it is all connected and part of this teaching that Jesus was giving to his apostles. So in this passage, Jesus has touched on important time periods around the first and the second comings of Christ. So that's, that's why we see, and again, you can see how that urgency has continued through the rest of this message as well. And we see that urgency and we see that intensity in Jesus' statements. And this is, this is a, one reason why we know that this is not just a general flow of Christian history that, that Jesus is talking about. He is talking about specifically these time periods and, and the intensity um, of them and the urgency of them because they are limited time periods. Now, many thought that the kingdom would immediately come since the Messiah had come. In other words... There were many in, in Israel that even seemed to believe in, in Jesus that they thought that they would just march triumphantly into exalted and blessed positions. In other words, that Israel could go into the kingdom without that 70th week that has been prophesied without enduring the time of Jacob's trouble, without going through the day of the Lord. Well, 
Jesus' words to the apostles informs them quite differently. And again, uh, the things that Jesus has talked about in this passage are going to be elaborated on more as we go um, further through the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus is preparing them here for what? For persecution. He's preparing them for imprisonment. He's preparing them even for death. Not not that they are going to um, be escorted um, into this triumphant kingdom to all the, the applause of those that stand by. It's not going to come that way. Now, of course, the apostles were also to preserve and to transmit the words of Jesus so that that we even have them today. We know what Jesus taught. We know um, what to expect in the future because of the apostles and their calling and and mission. So Jesus, Jesus has given us his revelation of these future events. Now, we can sometimes um, perhaps wonder or be puzzled by prophecy. And again, we think back to to how we began and looking at that passage in Isaiah and just just recognizing that prophecy certainly can, can be difficult. But one thing we know is that Jesus didn't give us this revelation simply for us to fight about and divide other over and, and mock others who don't uh, agree with us about it. He's given us his revelation in, in order to know and to believe in him and to get ready for his coming. So we can look at, at the time and though we don't have a uh, we don't have, you know, dates and, and all of the, these sort of things. But, but we can see we are clearly in this space between his first and his second comings. That the second coming of, of Jesus Christ is, is on the horizon, as it were. And as you go through all of the New Testament, you just get repeated message of being prepared, being ready, watching being engaged in what Jesus has, has given us to do to prepare ourselves to that coming. So we can also say that, yes, it, it does give us some urgency, even in, in this time that we are living in. We don't know the time. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour that Jesus Christ will return, but we know that he's going to return. Many things that are spoken of in this passage are things that haven't come to pass yet. There are things that are to be fulfilled. Yes, there's a time of judgment that's coming when hidden things will be revealed. Nothing is going to be hidden from from the judge of all the earth. These things are going to be revealed. So we do have some urgency as well that we spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the warning of his coming judgment in the time that we are given to live. And no matter how... how, uh, many may uh, discount or discredit or mock or simply set aside this message. Oh, Jesus is coming, you know. Well, you know, he hasn't came yet, and he hasn't came for a long time. And, and well, we don't even know if we believe that there's any such Jesus to come. And all of these sort of things, despite all that, the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is going to return. And we are to be preparing ourselves and telling others to be ready for that time.